Hello, hello. Uh, my name is Mika Marcelet, and you are listening to Talking Aging on Vancouver Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM or coopradio.org. This is being recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh people. Today, we are speaking with Dan Lovett about long-term care and what the COVID-19 pandemic has shown in terms of opportunities for change and transformation in this sector. I think we can all agree that Canadian older adults living in long-term care deserve better. There are just so many things people don't even think about. And unless you have someone in your family living in long-term care or you know it firsthand, um, you might just not know. So I'm very interested. Let's get right into the conversation. Thank you for listening. My name is Dan Levitt. I'm the executive director of Tabor Village, and I'm also an adjunct professor in the School of Nursing at UEC and gerontology department at Simon Fraser University, as well as teaching uh, courses at BCIT in um, health systems in Canada. As well, I do um, some writing and some speaking on age-related matters. And I'm honored to be here today to talk about uh, COVID-19 and long-term care and seniors. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have you. Thank you for joining. So COVID-19 and the pandemic has like shone a light on the existing challenges that were already being faced in long-term care. But I also like to think that it kind of like comes as a perfect opportunity to make changes like for innovation and creative thinking um, in long-term care, do you also agree with that? Absolutely. I think the COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately exposed the the challenges, the you know, the crevices, if you will, in in long-term care, especially in, in retirement homes and and care homes. And uh, the unfortunate part was the the carnage that we lost so many seniors in Canada and around the world, and the impact on staff members who were caring for them and their family members, the social isolation. Of people who were really stuck in their in their rooms, um, almost like a prisoner in a cell, confined to that space for weeks and months at a time, and you add on the dementia piece, and not having families being able to visit, um, it was really um, a challenging situation to say the least. And family members, you know, was shut out. Staff members um, who were short in terms of staffing not being available because they were sick, and with you know, the, all those challenges, they really accentuated the the already stretched system. So I do believe that we're going to see innovation come out of this, and my hope is that um, the the narrative that we saw will not repeat itself. And I do believe that you know, people in those um, positions where they have influence on changing the system at you know very macro level to you know the micro level, I believe everybody involved will do everything possible to turn this ship around and create a much better future for seniors who require care. So, what kind of changes would you like to see? Yeah, I think there are a number of things we can do. One of them would be, you know, reinventing the nursing home. That um, the old aged institution that we're all familiar with that that looks like a hospital with long corridors that are cluttered, uh, where staff are you know, kind of almost on the assembly line, getting the, the seniors ready for breakfast, so they're at the dining room table by eight o'clock and they're rushing back and forth, and then they come they come back after their meal. Um, a, a lunchtime meal and a dinnertime meal, and uh, their days really regimented around food services and some activities um, that, that, to some degree, enhance their quality of life. But it's anything but a home-like environment. Um, it really is that institutional piece. So, you know, reinventing the nursing home so that it feels like a home and, in fact, is a home. So, there's something called um, the small household model where between 
six and 12 people would live together and have you know, basically the same amenities you have in your own home and nothing in that space would look like an institution. There'd be a den with a fireplace. Um, there'd be that, that large living room um, where you can have some communal space, um, even during an outbreak um, where you could have social distancing going on um, and they each have their own bedroom uh, with space for sitting and having a guest as well as their, their, their ensuite bathroom and shower. Um, they have an open kitchen with a large um, table um, like you might have in your own dining room that you grew up with, almost a farm table. And then that open kitchen, um, they can participate in the meal preparation and even influence what the meal is for the day. And they can do home life activities. So, and this whole model is decentralized. So it's all self-contained. The same staff members work there. So you don't have to worry about cohorting because it's a natural community. So that would be one big change from those institutions that we saw on the, on the evening news that would basically um, stop the spread of outbreaks um, because we saw this before COVID, we saw it with influenza. And those care, those care homes that have converted to um, the greenhouse model, which is one of the, so the brands of those small households, um, they saw very few outbreaks. So there is something to be said with cohorting seniors in small communities. The question really is for our society and for all of us to think about is are we willing to invest that kind of money to protect seniors and provide them the care that I believe they deserve. So is that the biggest barrier, is just funding? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you could always, for a lot of problems, say it's funding. But I think part, there's a couple of issues. One is that a lot of us aren't willing to pay for the cost of of, uh, of care homes. And a good example would be the dementia village that exists in Langley. This is probably one of the top um, communities anywhere in Canada. And in terms of the layout, it, it's... It's um, it is fenced in, but you can once you're inside, there's a lot of freedom of movement, much greater than most care homes. I mean, it's all single story, and you can you're free to move about in that community, even when it's raining or snowing. You're still allowed to, you know, get out and, and go to the, you know, see animals and plants and you know, participate in you know really really regular village activities. And uh, when people are considering moving there, they're they're shocked at the price of it per day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's between 6000 and $10,000 per month. But that is the cost of a care home. It costs a lot of money to build these places. It costs a lot of money to operate them. And, uh, you know, the question really is for all of us, are we willing to pay that? And if it's not out of our own pocket, it's, it's money that taxpayers have paid. So I think we have to figure out different ways of financing these, these buildings and consider things like a life lease model where perhaps you would, you would buy essentially um, that, that condominium if you concept and like a life lease, and then when you leave, when you essentially pass away, um, your heirs would get that that amount of money, and the new person moving in would then pay um, the amount. So um, that would that would um, take government out of the picture, having to finance all these buildings. And then I think you know the, the operation cost, yes, because of the Canada Health Act, will continue to fund the the medical component, but really that hotel component, the room and board, um, that should be con- you know I would think those who can afford it, that would be. Um, uh, their responsibility. Now, the nice thing is, in some jurisdictions, we've already seen this happen. In Australia, they have a bond program where that actually happens, where you do pay um, um, uh, essentially an entrance fee um, to move in. And those people who can't afford um, that fee, they pay it. And those who can't, um, are they come in on, if you will, the backs of those people who, who can. And no one knows who's paying and who's not. So it, 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 it is a, an equitable uh, fashion, so no one's um, denied access. And uh, where we've seen the, those jurisdictions have that kind of system, we've seen a renaissance of new buildings. And I think we need to rethink how we value seniors and um, consider um, 
how we want to um, what we can do with our our own savings, um, both both um, at a government level and at a you know a nonprofit community based model in cities and even personally. Um, what what would it look like if 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 our heirs um, didn't get a hundred percent of our of, of the inheritance that they might think they're getting? What if they got a little bit less? Um, could, could we manage? And my my hope is my prayer is that we would. So it's definitely possible. And the home you were speaking about before is the village Langley, um, and you said there there were fewer outbreaks. Is that just because there's not as that they don't share as much space, kind of thing? Like, yeah, exactly. So okay. if you have if you have a care home um, with um, you know, 70 people living essentially in one large um, um, area, so mm-hmm. they're basically using the same dining rooms, they're, they're the long hallways, um, there's no really way of, of coverting people because if you covert them, um, there's so much overlap in space. And these these buildings that are outdated, the, the, uh, the air conditioning systems, so they have them, but the ventilation systems, mm-hmm. um, they basically move, move airborne pathogens back and forth from room to room. And uh, there's really no way of segregating populations. So we have to basically kind of cross out, I believe, that that, that design element and only design nursing homes where you have um, completely self-contained. And when I talk mean completely self-contained, they're, they're making their own meals. They're, they're doing their own laundry. There's, there's, not, there's nothing being transported to and from. And the workers would, would have their own breaks on in that space and even maybe out, outdoors. So they're not... They're not to do all cross-contaminating between different communities. I think that's really the only way of protecting seniors from the outcomes we saw um, and read about. Right. So this relates to what you mentioned in the article that you wrote in Medicine Matters is about the chronic underfunding, aging, understaffing, and aging infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, the the understaffing, basically, and the underfunding is that we haven't seen the kind of investment in the sector, even in the operational cost. And it's unfortunate that um, we did allow um, the kinds of things that we saw to happen because we weren't funding uh, care homes in, in the right way. And we did allow, um, it was essentially governments, previous governments, allowed contracting out and, and allowed um, the situation where, where people were working multiple jobs and, and that contributed to um, the kind of outcomes we see. So we, we really valued seniors. We value the people who are caring for them. And they are doing some of the toughest jobs in healthcare. And, uh, you know, even um, a nurse, an RN, is paid less in long-term care than she's paid in acute care. And it really makes no sense because she's still a nurse. She's still doing critically important work. And perhaps even, more, even in some cases more important because of the stress they've been under. So we should see um, a, bar- a more robust staffing mix, not just of care aides and nurses, but of other um, professionals, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, um, some other special speech and language pathologists. Um, we need more of that extra um, pieces to really make a robust um, living environment. And the staffing levels are too low. We're seeing we're seeing um, the amount of direct care hours just aren't enough for the kind of population we have. And, and we have to really consider that these in, these built environments are no longer um, hospitable to the staff or the people living there because of the, the different. Um, face the the higher acuity levels that we're seeing. So um, it's almost impossible to provide the kind of care that we would envision for ourselves or a loved one in in buildings that are not um, that not it can't support that, that that kind of care that we need. So we do need to completely rethink um, our staffing levels, our funding, and replacing the infrastructure. Right, and this is the thing. So staffing, I think, is a huge issue. And I mean, healthcare heroes, like, isn't that 
the whole thing we were hearing about all year. These are the healthcare heroes. Thank God we have these people. <laughs> Do you notice if the staff were treated as heroes or? Well, yeah, that, that's a good point. So you know, a year ago, um, if you remember in, in the kind of springtime that we were outside at seven o'clock, you know, cheering them on. And, uh, you know, we were talking about how them being heroes and, uh, you know, really doing amazing things. And then kind of um, as the vaccinations started rolling out in December um, in Canada, we started seeing um, our attention go to things like, you know, um, acute care um, uh, overload in ICU. We saw the vaccine distribution, and that's really the, the story now. And we're grateful that we're not seeing outbreaks in care homes anymore. We're grateful um, that things have turned around there. Um, but if we really want to uh, be true to what happened this past year, we, we we would give much more attention to the, the people who are dedicating themselves um, to enhance the lives of seniors. And th- they're doing work that the families can't do. And um, there isn't support in the community. And there probably will never be to, to replace the nursing home um, 100%. Although we're going to see more, more um, services in the community. We'll see more home care, more supports. But we're still going to need... Um, care homes, especially for the people who really cannot be cared for safely in, in their own home. Right. So I guess the seniors BC, the ad, sorry, the advocate, the seniors advocate of BC, um, the survey, her survey says that 90% of those age 65 plus um, are concerned about challenges like for long-term care in Canada. Um, do you find that concerning? Do you find that maybe hopeful that there's people who are willing to vote for change kind of thing or yeah it, it's it's very encouraging um and i'm hoping that they'll vote for change like as you say that they will actually um, vote for a party and vote for um changes that would to society that would make our cities our communities and definitely our healthcare system um more age and dementia friendly and we're not we're seeing that not just in canada but in other jurisdictions uh, we're seeing, for example, in places like Singapore, uh, we're seeing that the majority of people want to age in their community. They don't want to move into a nursing home. And most people can't ever imagine um, moving into one. So we do have to make sure that we're um, providing a place that people would feel positive about and know that it is the best possible option. And I think there are, are not enough choices right now um, that people will feel confident about. So we need to, to basically um, take that those, those surveys and the voices of, of the family members of the seniors and the rest of us who um, one day um, are aspiring to, to grow old and our future self, should we need care, we want to have a place that's safe and we want the, communities, the community supports to be there so that we are able to access services in our um, close to home and even the village that we, the shops we would go to, that we can still um, maneuver through those places that they're um, totally accessible for people with dementia and they are barrier-free, and I think inclusivity um, really has to um, include seniors. And if you think about that, that inclusivity, what it really means is just like we've basically um, taken away um, lanes and parking area f- for bikes, and same thing with train tracks. We've replaced train tracks with, with greenways, we to, and we've done those curb cuts for people who are are um, who have uh, mobility issues, and we've even put in um, those the, the special sounds um, and lights for people who have a hearing or visual impairment, we need to do the same kinds of radical changes to our communities so seniors and older persons can age safely in, in their villages where they've you know, spent most of their adulthood and their, their older adulthood and make sure that they're 
that these nursing homes that we're building, that they're not you know, next to the acute care hospital, um, but, but they're actually in the middle of those villages, and, and, and they're part of, if you will, the marketplace. They're not um, excluded from um, society, which unfortunately um, happened during COVID, and that was probably the biggest thing we saw was how we, we isolated seniors from everybody else to protect them, but didn't have the kind of outcomes we wanted from that isolation. Yeah, exactly. It's not like long-term care homes are their own little silo. They're part of the community. So, of course, we need more age-friendly communities to assist with everyone's living. Exactly. One of the greatest things we see is, um, you know, it's, it's a classic thing in the nursing home, the, you know, the bus that you see driving around. And, uh, you know, in our care home, one of our favorite things to do is drive, drive down to White Rock and go to the beach and uh, have some fish and chips and kind of, you know, um, where possible, um, you, we try to get seniors down on the boardwalk and even, it, you know, once in a while we'll be able to get somebody um, on the sand and you have their feet, you know, touch the water no matter how cold it is. And that's, that's one of the greatest moments we have here. So you know, rather than just having a bus going all, you know, all the way far, far out, why not have, you know, these places that are you know, built right into the community and, and um, you know they're able to go to the you know the farmers market. They're able to continue doing things they've always done. Um, if they had a local hair salon or a place to got their nails done or um, wherever their church, they shouldn't have to be excluded from their from society just because they live in a home for the aged. It doesn't make any sense. Why would we accept that ourselves? We 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 wouldn't. So why would someone with dementia who's older not be able to to go back in their community? We should make it safe for them. Yes, 100%. And I mean, I think people with aging parents can totally relate to that. And then even people who don't have aging parents who can just relate to it on a level of, I don't want people in my community to be living so, so separated and so isolated. Exactly. And then if you think about you know, what, we, what would happen in, in the United States around the civil rights, and I, I know when my grandparents moved um, from... Uh, from from Europe or my in my grandma's case to to uh, to Canada, um, there was still discrimination against different populations that didn't quite fit into to the norm. And if you were to ask people, is there anybody who really isn't welcomed in you know our our villages and our marketplaces, um, in our cities, um, people would be surprised to know that that you know that seniors in care homes aren't really welcomed. They are excluded from that, and unless they have a family member who would take them out or they're paying someone. Um, or have a volunteer, and they're, if they're blessed enough to have someone like that, you know, they they really spend most of their time in that care home, and they only leave for a doctor's appointment or maybe a bus outing. So, how do we make sure that these communities are accessible so they can access the world around them? And if they can't leave the care home, at least the property where the care home exists, they can wander around and enjoy um, parks and animals and gardening and just the outside. Um, and you know, we all have the right in Canada, especially to experience snow and to experience the, the cold weather and the rain. It's part of the human condition to complain about the weather. So when you move into nursing home, you should be, have the right to still complain about the weather despite not being able to go outside. So we've got to find ways of really making sure our communities are inclusive for all populations and that we don't segregate seniors um, into that silo that we call the nursing home. So, you would say this is like a form of ageism and just even the way the funding is allocated and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and one, one example of ageism, and it, it's a fairly you know, poignant point, but I've, I've heard people compare what happened in the nursing home and saying, well, what would have happened if this had been the, the dorms where it happened in yeah. universities across Canada? Um, what, would that have, what, what kind of narrative would there be? I, I can only imagine... You know, our, our teenage daughters are close to that age, and our, we, they, we have friends whose kids are in dorms, universities. 
I, that would be an incredible tragedy. And it's no differently than we don't place, place the same value on a life of a 95 year old as a, you know, as a, you know, a, a freshman in college or university. So um, that would be ageism that we think one life's more valuable than the other. Um, and you, people will argue that point and say, say that no, we should be protecting the, the, the children first. And that was one of the policies I saw that was great was the vaccinations were distributed first to nursing home staff and the residents living there, assisted living, and the family members. I thought, and then now the age related because of the severity of illness with with based on age. Um, but that policy of of you know essentially serving seniors first in this case, I'd love to see that policy kind of ripple through all of government policy and society policy so that um, seniors are really included and that we can root out ageism. Ageism started, or it was defined by um, we, we call, what we call nimbyism, not in my backyard, where there was a, um, a senior's um, apartment building, a complex that was targeted for old people, and nobody wanted it in their backyard, um, in their area. And people actually, at a particular city council, I believe it was in the Boston area, they were kind of protesting and saying, I don't want this being built um, nearby where I live. It might devalue my, my property value. I don't want to see those people. What? And uh, that was the first for, that was the first example of 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 where ageism was defined. And since then, we started to pay attention to it. But it's still the last ism. And where we where we see it the most is really in care homes, because um, the people who are working in care homes are often disadvantaged themselves. You have a population of mostly immigrants um, doing work that a lot of people who are kind of grew up in in their home country um, they don't want to do that work necessarily, even though it's probably some of the most important work we do. Uh, they're often immigrants, and they're often women. So you have, you know, the, if you will, the racism piece, you have the sexism, and then because they're caring for old people, you have the ageism. So the intersection of those three large, large isms, and um, that's perhaps why we devalue it, because um, the, if you will, the people who are living here aren't contributing to the gross domestic product, um, and uh, the people who are working here are basically... Um, mostly being paid for through taxpayers' dollars. So people see it as a strain on resources versus um, providing a service that is providing a value to society. And only the people who are really benefiting from this um, in terms of not having to do the work themselves are the children and or the spouse. And it's generally women who would be the providing that, that informal caregiving. So I'm um, also not re- recognized for the hardship. So um, that story's got to be told, and we've got to make sure that we do everything possible to root out ageism altogether because it really should have no place at all in society. Yes, I completely agree. And the fact that caregiving is like so undervalued in society, I shows that we need like a shift in the way people think about it. Absolutely. And one of the great things is that we're starting to see popular culture and art um, reflect that. So one of the nice things we saw this year at the Academy Awards was, um, so Anthony Hopkins' um, portrayal of um, Anthony, I think this was, the script was actually written for him, um, of the father, somebody whose who's, um, reality is unraveling as he's facing his own dementia, and his, he won an Oscar for that role. And uh, Olivia Coleman, who should have gotten an Oscar as well, plays his daughter, um, and uh, you can see the impact on her, the devastation and the losses on, on her, and even in her personal life, her, her failing marriage. And that story was told beautifully, and the visual of it, the reality that they portrayed, um, was very confusing in the movie. So you kind of felt like someone who has dementia, and like um, at least just for a glimpse into that moment. And then I believe six years ago, um, we saw um, the movie Still Alice, um, 
um, we saw the story of Alice, who has um, early onset dementia, um, also for Julia Moore get an Oscar Best, Best Actress award for her. So people are starting to to read about this, to, to tell the story of the caregivers that is really, though, they, for sure, Vanta were heroes. They're the unsung heroes who aren't recognized, you know, very few um, benefits to being um, a, a caregiver other than perhaps your own personal um, survival if you can make it through of knowing that you're doing something that really no one else could do and, you know, the privilege to serve somebody. And uh, I think the importance of groups like the Alzheimer's Societies and Alzheimer's Associations, we really have to hold those organizations up and caregivers. And, and I think we're going to see more and more a voice of the caregivers being much more prominent with families and those people living in care also. We're going to see families um, having more of a voice and being more at the table. So I think there's some, hopefully some positive things that will happen um, in the near future where, where we have a shift of, of uh, listening to those impacted by um, um, lack of independence, uh, unfortunately associated with old age, where one in three people over 85 will need care at some point in their lifetime. Right. So it's basically going to affect everybody. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's it's hard to find someone that hasn't had an, a, a relative who's had um, some kind of dementia. Um, it's it's in my family. Most people have some connection to it, and those of us who have that connection or work in the field, we think everyone has that. But there are people who are you know lucky enough to um, kind of escape that because it's one in three require care. The other third of the population over eighty five um, are caring for somebody in care, but the other third um, will never need care. And there are people that, you know, couples and families um, that basically they have, um, they're just the lucky ones. But I, and they're, you know, they're dancing, romancing, and they wish the music would never stop. But I'd love to see a reversal. Um, wouldn't that be great? Where, where, where the lucky ones are the ones who were in care. And when they entered care, they, they dispelled those myths of, 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 of aging where, um, People might say things like, she looks good for her age. Well, what if, what if you know, that 90-year-old, you know, people say, oh, she looks like she's 60. Well, let's, let's own our age and say it. the 90-year-old has always looked good. And she's able to put her own makeup on, to do her own hair, and to get assistance with, with dressing and feel really good about herself, her self-esteem. Why, why can't we do that? And you know, likewise, people say things like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And we see that in the workplace where people are discriminated against based on their age. But what if in the nursing home, people were actually learning to cook or relearning to cook? What if they were doing artwork and gardening and doing other things, um, maybe being a musician or a teacher, doing things that uh, we wouldn't imagine them, giving opportunities to really uh, flourish and in- enjoy life to the fullest? I think that's really what would make a big difference for seniors and especially in long-term care and just living kind of a, a renaissance of their own life and uh, really having uh, just a wonderful, as much as possible, a wonderful existence from the time they have left. Yes, absolutely. And you look good for your age is not really a compliment. You could just say you look good. I think people should understand that. Yeah, and, and that's a, a good example. Um, there's a woman, um, Apple, sorry, Ashton Apple White, I believe is her last name. She wrote a book um, called This Chair Rocks. And uh, I asked her recently in a webinar she was giving, I said, you know, what do you say if, if someone says to you, um, you look good for your age? She said, um, you could politely smile and say, you look good for your age too. <laughs> yeah, that's and, good. And, and if somebody asks you what your age is, um, unless it's you know, for you know, an application of some kind, um, you could say back to them um, the year you were born, which makes them having to calculate how old you are. 
but it also basically is hopefully they would think of you as being someone who's lived a lot of years versus someone who they can categorize and kind of slide into a certain um, characterization of somebody of a certain age. So there are some strategies to kind of call people. Another one of my favorite ones is uh, um, I'm having a senior moment, which suggests that everyone who's old um, is memory impaired, which is not the case. Um, um, because you know, when I lose my keys, I don't call myself, oh, I'm having a senior moment. Because our daughter, when she loses her keys, she's a teenager, yeah. um, she doesn't say I'm having a junior moment. So, so yeah, it should be a positive thing. Like when you, know, when you do really well on something because you have experience, you could say, well, this is my senior moment <laughs> or something. Exactly. We should be celebrating. And actually, Senior Moment is the name of a movie with uh, William Shatner that that's, uh, was released this year. And uh, it's a romantic comedy. And it's very interesting. He's a 90-year-old who's playing, I think, a mid guy in his mid-70s. Interesting that the story wasn't written for a 90-year-old. But it's a romantic comedy about seniors. And the nice thing is, I haven't seen the movie yet, but it's basically kind of putting that thing out there that seniors aren't interested in intimacy. And that's one of those those um, um, stigmas of, of um, Alzheimer's or of you know, growing old that you know, we're no longer people. And even things like incontinence, um, we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. We should be um, basically owning who we are and uh, making sure that um, we honor um, everyone regardless of their age and treat them the same way as we treat anyone who's an adult. Absolutely. So now that we have um, the, the vaccine rollout, just back to the pandemic, what are the like what are the rules at long-term care in terms of visitation and everything? Yeah, so we, we've opened up our doors. We basically took the locks off our doors in long-term care and it's living, welcome families back. Um, we are encouraging staff members to get vaccinated. Um, we're not quite at herd immunity in all care homes in long-term care. We're getting close to it. Um, I believe the official number is 90%. Um, some places are lower than that. And depending on the kind of the... the um, the morale or social situation in different care communities, we might have a, a, a lower rate or a higher rate. So we've got to make sure that we get those, those vaccination rates up as much as possible. And the uh, same thing with the residents. We need as many people to get vaccinated as well as family members. So you know, the unfortunate thing is we're still seeing outbreaks. And in some of those outbreaks, people have been vaccinated. But with variants and with um, you know more case counts we've seen recently, um, we see that they're going down now. But uh, we do have to make sure that we're protecting people and our best defense is now the vaccinations. We still have to wash our hands, not touch our faces, remain six feet apart as much as possible, um, wear our mask, wear eye protection and the PPE, our gowns when, when we have outbreaks, and really be smart about it when we're not um, in care homes. Because those of us who are going in care homes, we all still have a risk of bringing it in. So we just make sure we're um, playing by the rules and uh, really excluding ourselves as much as possible from opportunities where we could contract the virus and bring it to work. Got it. Well, I'll leave it, I'll leave it there, <laughs> but thank you so much for speaking with me and for all that insight. It was a pleasure, Mika, anytime. That was my conversation with Dan Levitt about long-term care and the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Mika Marcelet. Thank you for listening. My name is Mika Marcelet, and you have been listening to Vancouver Co-op Radio at 100.5 FM or coopradio.org. You can support Co-op Radio by going to coopradio.org and clicking on the link to donate. Vancouver Co-op Radio is only made possible by supporters, and we really appreciate um, your support and contribution to public radio. Thank you.